Our work can be worship. Our work can be worship as I send our kids to their classes over there with Miss Joanna. I'm going to ask the rest of you to go to the book of Ephesians chapter 6. Today we're going to be verses 5 through 9. This will be our second to last week in this particular book. And next week we'll actually be taking communion. At the same time taking communion, we will be going through verses 10 through 24 to wrap up Ephesians. A few weeks ago, we looked at Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 through 21. And we looked at the passage, and the passage was basically summed up this way. Be filled with the Spirit, submitting to each other in Christ. Be filled with the Spirit, submitting to each other in Christ. The challenge was a Spirit-filled submission to one another in our marriages. Or as we talked about with our husbands and wives. The Spirit-filled submission in our households as we talked about parents and children. And today we're going to be looking at a Spirit-filled service as we talk about slaves and masters or, in a more modern-day application, a employee and an employer. Hence the reason for the opening video that said, Our work can be worship. I'm going to take it a step further than that video took it, though, because I believe it's more than just can be. Our work is our worship. Our work is a part of our worship in the way that we do it. So let's read from our passage today, and then we'll get to the is versus the can be. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 5, says this, Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart, as you would Christ. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude, as to the Lord and not to people. Knowing whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive back from the Lord. As masters treat your slaves the same way, without threatening them, because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. In our passage today, as we've already pointed out, Paul shifts, he moves to a new realm of the social order. He moves from the household to the workplace, although it's not quite as big of a shift as we might think because many slaves in those days lived in the household. So that same submission and the order and all the things that took place that we've talked about for the last two weeks really ties in with this as well. And while this has modern application for employees and employers, I want to make sure to take a few minutes this morning before we get too much further. I don't want to miss the original context that Paul was talking about with slave and master. Because even though some of, it might, some of us might think this when we go to work, an employee and a slave are not a one-to-one correlation. There, there's differences here, so I don't want to miss that truth, nor can we ignore the elephant that is in this passage. And the elephant in this passage is this. People ask a lot about what Paul writes when he writes to slaves in this. Is Paul condoning or is he overlooking slavery in our passage today? Why doesn't Paul condemn slavery in this passage or in any of his letters? Why why is he okay with it or is he okay with it? Well, here's some things I want you to understand. First of all, in the time that Paul was writing, there was nearly 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. 60 million. And it was said that one out of every three individuals in the city of Ephesus, which this letter was written to, was a slave. 
According to the stats that I read, there were more slaves in Rome and in the Roman Empire than there were free men. Just let that soak in for a second. And it was actually a common institution and so common that it was a heavy part of the economy for that day. And I'll explain more about that here because it's bigger than what you think in that well, uh, the, the realm of economy. Slavery, it had basically been around since the beginning, right? I mean, if you, if you really look at it, you can go back to the book of Genesis and into Exodus. You see God's people were put into slavery. And they were in slavery for for 430 years in bondage to the Pharaoh and and to Egypt until God delivered them. Slavery was a very commonplace thing, really from that point even on. So much so, like I said, became this huge part of the economy in the Greco-Roman world. And it was so thought of that it wasn't even questioned as being illegitimate in any way, shape, or form. We also need to know that slavery in Paul's world was not the same as the institution that we think of when we think of American slavery in the 19th century. Slaves were more of a socioeconomic class than a racial class that was doing forced labor. Um, Though slavery was full of inequalities and injustices even then that needed to be overcome in many homes, again, it was inside the home, many homes, slaves had quite a few freedoms, they had quite a few rights and responsibilities. They also did all sorts of work. They did do the grunt labor, but they also had white-collar jobs if there was such a thing in Roman times. Because the real reason why is in Rome and in Greece, in that Roman Greco world, manual labor was actually despised. It was actually despised and laborers were actually looked down upon. It was below me to have that menial job. We don't say that anymore, do we? People don't say that. That's why they're always looking for somebody to hire at McDonald's, right? It's below me. I can't do that. And many cultures, even in that day, and it still carries even into today, that the darker your skin was, and this is not a racial thing, the darker your skin was because you worked outside, like tan-wise even, moved you down on the totem pole because you were doing menial labor. You were working outside. So to be uh, physically fit was also a problem. I told Christian, I'm, like, I'm not sure if I should make this joke or not, but a fat white guy like me, I was sitting on the top because... Because I didn't have to go outside and do things. That, that kind of thinking was the reality of the day. And it wasn't because of racism. And it wasn't because of the things that we see today. It was because that is it. If When we went to Ethiopia to get our little guy in Dale, I remember talking to the Ethiopians, and they did not like the Sudanese. And the reason why they didn't like them is because they were darker skinned. And, and because they were darker skinned, they were lower on the totem pole. And it wasn't a racism thing. It was because they were outside workers. That's still common even today. You go over to China, when, when they're trying to be as white as they possibly can be, it's because they don't want to be field workers. They don't want to have a tan. And you look at all of these things, and this played itself out even then, and it put them down on the to- totem pole. So when we look at slavery, and we look at then, the reason why it was tolerated then was basically because the most part, it was tolerable. I know that sounds weird. It may not have been ideal, and that's the reason why Paul addresses masters in verse 9 that we'll see here soon, but it was tolerable. Slavery of that day didn't completely strip a person of their dignity. It didn't strip them and reduce them down to disposable property like the slavery of more modern times. So it was more accepted. Another truth we need to remember is this, and, and why the church didn't step up to do something, is in the early years of Christianity, Christianity was actually illegal. 
It was illegal in the Roman Empire, and the, the preaching and teaching was already bad enough. You were going to attack their economic status. It was going to create some serious waves in it all. And the, but here's the thing we do know. is I think the preaching and the teaching and the work of the gospel and the work of the Spirit to change lives from the inside out did eventually change the institution of slavery. It did eventually change it, and you're going to see Paul's ministry. It was never to overthrow the Roman government or any of its institution, but... You know what his ministry was? To preach the gospel of Christ. To preach the gospel of Christ. His main motive was not to undercut the Roman Empire, but the results of his evangelism did exactly that. Because he spoke the truth, and the truth changed lives, and the lives changed the world. Something kind of like that. Come as you are, be changed, go change the world. Let the gospel change you and let the gospel change the world. That is where we are at. I believe that the abolition of slavery today was a result of Christian influence of the world. It was the Christian influence of the world understanding that all men are equal in God's eyes. You have to think about Christian people like the Wilberforces. Maybe you've seen the movie. The Wesleys, the Whitefields, even the Abraham Lincolns of the world who stepped up Though the church didn't back then, they were able to step up and speak and preach against the uh, inequalities that were going on and preach towards the equality of mankind. Preach against the abolition of slavery, sorry, for the abolition of slavery, for the care of children and widows. It was the care of the needy. And they are all influenced by Paul's writing, right? So it took longer probably than what we would want, but we see the results of it even today. What's interesting to me as if we talked over the last couple of weeks, Christianity is what really brought women up to the right place in society. And Christianity is really what brought children up to their right place in society. And eventually, even though the Bible doesn't overtly condemn slavery, and it doesn't commend it either, what the Bible does do is it changed men and women from the inside out that had an effect on the institution that was a part of this culture. Another interesting flat fact is this. There were so many slaves that if you had openly radically opposed slavery it would have brought the illegal church into a really strong conflict with the roman empire and even more so than the preaching of the gospel it was going to undercut some economy things and then you take a next step the slaves because many slaves and i didn't explain this earlier but many slaves actually sold themselves into slavery because they were in debt and needed to pay it off many of those slaves would have been out of work and they would have been in poverty without the ability to get out of it if they had attacked it in that way. So God, through the gospel, changed the hearts of men, still is, and as a result, legal slavery has basically been eliminated from most societies. Although, because of man's sinful heart, there is still slavery that goes on today and throughout the world, really, in all different forms. It's a hard truth that if you've seen the movie um, The Sound of Freedom or Taken with Liam Neeson, any of those kind of things like that, you, you see the realities that are out there. So I guess the question we have to ask today is this. Is what does the Bible say about the current form of slavery? Because there are going to be people out there that say, oh, the Bible and the Christianity, they're all for slavery, and, and that, they're the reason, and there's a lot of blame that goes on. But I want to take some time, and I want to clarify what the Scripture actually says about slavery and, and what it speaks against the cruel types of slavery that still exist. What does the Bible say? Well, first, if you look at Luke chapter 10, verse 27. Jesus says these words, love your neighbor. You know what it means to love your neighbor? Don't own them. I mean, that, that seems, I'm glad I got a little chuckle over here. That's good. 
it's pretty self-explanatory. We love our neighbor. We don't own them. Taking someone against their will is a vile and wicked act. And it goes completely against the great commandment. Second one I see is the golden rule found in Matthew seven twelve. Does anybody know what that is? Do unto others as you'd have done unto you, correct? At least that's the King James version of it all. Um, when you really get to start thinking about it, getting ripped from your family, your home, and your life only to be used and abused for somebody else's gain, yeah, you know, that doesn't quite fall into the golden rule. The third one, when I look at the Bible, I can't ever find a time that being a human slave or a human master is portrayed as a good thing. But being free always is. Israel is in brutal slavery. God frees them. You and I are in bondage to sin. God has freed us, which really leads to the fourth one. Slavery goes against the gospel. The good news of the gospel is you are no longer in bondage to sin and shame when Jesus frees us. It goes against that. Fifth and final one, one we've already touched on, but I truly believe the teachings of the Bible and the biblical writers really do undermine the institution of slavery. How is that? Well, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Very first words are, be imitators of God. Well, who is God? <laughs> That's a loaded question. But in this sense, right here, right now, Pastor Bruce actually read from Psalm 68, and he said he is a father to the fatherless and a champion to the widows. That is who God is. If you go into um, what is said in Psalm 146.9, it says God is a God of justice and compassion. We see he stands against the oppressors. We see that he cares for the, for the vulnerable. That is the first thing we see. 1 Timothy 1. 1 Timothy 1 has a fun list of vile sins that go against God and humanity. But you know what verse 10 specifically calls out? Slave traders. Verse 10 specifically calls them out. Galatians 3.28, Paul teaches about equality in humanity. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ. I can go on and on with this list. And in that list, over and over again, Paul is undermining the institution of slavery, even in our passage today. Because you'll see in our passage today that he's planting seeds on how Christians should treat one another that would affect those who are watching, those who are paying attention, those who are watching from the outside to say, man, you are different. He is planting seeds through the Christian community. It was subtle, but it was also powerful. It was subtle but powerful. Paul focused on spreading the gospel in a society that approved slavery. And in so doing, he planted seeds to the destruction of that slavery. John Stott, guy I quote often now that we've been going through the book of Ephesians because he's got a great commentary on it, said this in his commentary. The gospel immediately began, even in the first century, to undermine the institution. It lit a fuse which at long last led to the explosion which destroyed it. I've already said it, but Paul's main concern was spreading the gospel. His main concern is spreading the gospel, but he also, even in this passage, describes the ethics required between Christian slaves and Christian masters that will preach the gospel in themselves, and in it, change typical relationships between a master and a slave. By changing how they're related to each other, and planting those seeds, and speaking into people's lives, it led to slavery's destruction through a gospel conversion and a conversation that would come up as well. How does he tell them to relate to each other? Well, there's a couple of things that we wrote down here that are found in this passage. First, he encourages both slave and master to treat each other as they would Christ. If you look throughout this verse, you're going to see either Christ or master and Lord mentioned in all the verses. 
He's pointing it to there. There's something we need to know about that culture that, that we need to understand. If, when these words came out about masters treating their slaves in the same way, that would have been shocking. That would have been completely unbelievable. That alone, seeing respect and fear with sincerity as hearts as to Christ, that should have changed really slavery for Christians and abolished it right then. Here, the ethics that he is laying out go far beyond just that golden rule that we talked about. It actually is about treating people as you would treat the Lord. How would you treat Christ? We'll ask that question here in a little bit. The next thing we see is Paul reminds both slave and master they are under the lordship of Christ. There is no favoritism with him. He doesn't separate. Paul doesn't quote the Mosaic law, although he could have. All you have to do is go to Exodus chapter 20 through 24, and you're going to find laws pertaining to masters and slaves, but he doesn't go to that. You know what he goes to? He goes to Christ. He points to Christ. Let me ask you, if both knew they were living under the watchful eye of Christ at all times, how would that change the work ethic of slaves and the treatment given by masters? Truly, I believe it would have changed everything. And that is what Paul's goal was. Using the gospel to change the world. They both were to be living in awareness of what Christ would be and who Christ is, the ultimate master, the ultimate judge. And with him, understand there is no partiality. Just because you're a master doesn't make you better. Paul calls masters also to show justice and mutual concern towards slaves. The idea, this idea, was found nowhere in the legal code. As a matter of fact, when he says, Master, treat your slaves in the same way without threatening them, you would have to understand that in the legal code of the day, they allowed prejudice. This was completely new and foreign to so many different people. Before we move on to what we're going to say, this I, I just want to, I guess, make sure I clarify it. Please understand, neither Paul nor the biblical writers endorse slavery. They undermined it. The world's going to tell you different. And the world will probably give you some weak argument and take verses out of context. The problem is, is there's Christian people who are for it and have been. Even in the 1800s, they used the Bible as their defense. And they took verses out of context. They, they don't know the gospel. And they didn't know the gospel. When we see the gospel, we understand that slavery slowly died because of the influence of Christianity. Do you know there are even slaves in the Ephesian congregation that are reading this letter? But they were never considered second-class members. As a matter of fact, if you go back to Ephesians chapter 4, Paul preaches unity. I want you to be unified in this. In this together, as we walk through it, Paul took into account the existing structure and he provides gospel-centered instruction to both slave and masters that we are going to look at now. So what we're going to do is we're going to look back at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. And as we dive in, I want to learn or have us learn and apply Paul's revolutionary, God-centered words about slaves and about masters. So first he says to the slaves, basically this, do your work as unto Christ. Verses 5 through 8. Verses 5 through 8 says, uh, first in, in verse 5, it says, as to Christ. Verse 6, as slaves of Christ. Verse 7, as to the Lord. Verse 8, receive this back from the Lord. The command is clear. It's a command that we can even apply even today, and that is this. Live all of your life for Christ. Live all of your life for Christ. While slaves were to obey their masters, they were to see Christ as their ultimate master. 
By calling slaves a Christ-centered perspective, Paul gave them a higher goal in serving their human masters, and they also were basically freed from the mundane grind of day-to-day work. Understand why you do what you do. With this overarching motive in mind, the question comes up, how exactly are they supposed to glorify Christ in their work? Well, Paul mentions four different ways that this exemplary service should look and would look. The first is the word respect. Respect. Glorify Christ by working respectfully. The first half of verse 5, Paul says they are to obey with fear and trembling, which actually carries the same idea from 521 as we are to submit in the fear of Christ, to, to have that awe. We weren't to work seriously and reverently on our own. It, it was all about Christ. We were working for Christ. And it's something we mentioned last week, but this respect and this idea of respect isn't something that we see as much anymore. And we talked about really last week, we mentioned it then, and I'll mention it now, as goes the home, so goes society. And as goes the father, so goes the home. We've lost the respect. We've lost the, the drive to do what is right. And that's why this section of Ephesians that we've been going through and really taking a whole lot more time on is so important, not just to know, but actually to apply. I've used the illustration of soap before. If you've been here long enough, you might even still have a box of Irish Spring under your sink somewhere because I gave it to you to remember the soap. Soap is great in the box. It smells good, but it does nothing until you actually apply it. And the same thing goes for the Word of God. When we look at the Word coming from Ephesians, if we don't apply it, it's not going to matter. The ripple effects of application are huge or the lack of application as well. So respect is the first thing. Second thing is the sincerity. Glorify God by working wholeheartedly and consistently. The second half of verse 5 and the first half of verse 6 says there's an emphasis on the heart. There's insincerity of your heart and do God's will from your heart. Paul's basically saying, hey, don't be a hypocrite. Don't be a hypocrite just working when the boss is watching. Don't only be doing what you're doing, working while being watched, but don't just try and be people pleasers be consistent don't be a two-faced person now i'm going to throw up a picture this is my dog this is one of one of our three and this is mercy and mercy's a little bit older than this but this is a great picture of her face because if mercy would have been a boy her name wouldn't have been mercy it would have been harvey and the reason why it would have been harvey is if you're a fan of batman harvey dent is also two-faced she has a great split of being dapple on one side and black and tan on the other. So she is my little two-faced dog. And you know what? She acts that way sometimes too. She's very cantankerous and then sometimes so loving. And she likes to do her own thing. And then sometimes she's kind of like a cat, really, is what it boils down to. Uh, she, she is truly a two-faced dog. And I throw that up there just for a visual reminder that that's not what we're supposed to be. We are supposed to be consistent consistent in our testimony be who god made you to be and continue to be that way so there is a consistency there there is also an enthusiasm that paul writes about enthusiasm glorify christ by working willingly and enthusiastically i'm not talking like snow white whistle while you work but a little enthusiasm paul says they should serve with a good attitude He tells them to put their heart and soul into the work because, after all, they're doing God's will. 
Paul encourages cheerful and glad service, even when the situation isn't ideal. I'm glad he's only talking to first century slaves here, right? Because I should be able to complain and grumble at work, right? We'll get to that. Why do we do all these things? What's the result? Well, next, Paul says, glorify Christ by working expectantly, expecting this result. Paul reminds him that the ultimate reward is coming, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. The Bible is very clear that no act goes unnoticed. Believers will appear before the judgment seat of Christ and will be rewarded based on their present faithfulness. We need to hold on to that. Think about how we approach this perspective and how it would change the way someone would work. It's almost like that idea that we said up front, work is a form of our worship. Work is a form of our worship. So he says that first to the slaves. Then he directs verse 9 to the masters. And he says this, Treat your slaves as you would Christ. Here's where we see four words that Paul gives to the Christian masters in just one verse regarding the treatment of their servant. These challenges were completely countercultural and completely life-changing. They changed their lives as you look at it and see it. So the first thing is, it says, practice reciprocity or mutuality. Those are big words to say, treat people the same way as you want to be treated. Masters were to treat their slaves as they wanted to be treated, with integrity, with respect, with humility, with gentleness. This was the goal. They were to treat them as if they were treating Christ. If masters wanted to respect and service, they should give it also. That's the first thing he said. The second thing he said was avoid hostility. Avoid hostility. It says here, without threatening them. Challenging masters to do this would have been extremely rare. But guess what? Christians are supposed to be different including the master-slave relationship. He says, don't be a bully. Next thing is, is live with Christ-centered accountability. You know that both their master and yours is in heaven. Masters were to live with the fear of Christ. There are plenty of Proverbs that remind us, as well as in the New Testament, that we are all in the same in the eyes of God. We're all the same. And that awareness is sobering, and it changes the way that we view other people. The last thing Paul wrote was, remember God's impartiality. He said, there is no favoritism with him. History tells us that partiality or prejudice, again, was written into the Roman law. You could be prejudiced if you were a master over a slave. So this was a completely different way of thinking. And the reason why it's a completely different way of thinking is because the Lord Jesus is completely impartial. He doesn't care. There's only one thing that he's going to look at, whether you're in him or not. That's the only thing that's going to happen on the judgment seat. He's not going to care if you had slaves. He doesn't care if you were a slave. He doesn't care if you were a CEO. He doesn't care if you were the fry cook at back at McDonald's. All he cares about is if you're in him or not. And each of these principles, as Paul is writing and teaching, it is shrinking the gap between the slave and between the master. It was that equality that Paul preached put into action. This way of thinking was radically different. By the way, this whole walk worthy that we've been going through since, man, June, it's all about radically different living. And we're radically different because Christ has changed us. And he is changing us. And that continues to play itself out even in this. So I guess the big question for today is, is how does this even matter to me? I am not a slave and I am not a master. 
How does this apply to my life? How can I take the idea of slaves and masters and make it applicable today? Well, the first thing is something we need to see from what I said very up front, and that is this. There is no work that is only work. It's all a way to serve Christ. But you don't understand. My job is terrible. I'm not saying that, by the way. I'm saying what I've heard from other people. My job, you know, I, I, there's a meme that's going around that I, I, I laughed at the other day, and I'm like, oh, I should comment, but I know better than to, because um, it just starts a, a snowball that isn't one that I'm going to ever be able to stop. But it said this. It said, I wish they would make a reality TV show about a CEO who went and took on the minimum wage employees that they have and tried to live like them for a month. And I'm like, it'd be a better one when you put the minimum wage employee into the spot of the CEO and see what they do for a month. See how quickly they crash the company. We have to understand that, that just because you're minimum wage doesn't mean that you should be equal with the CEO. There's been work that's gone into it. There's schooling that goes into it. And sometimes, well, let's be honest, there's a reason why minimum wage is minimum wage. It's because it wasn't meant to be a living wage. It was meant to teach you how to work and have that respect and have those things and take that next step and grow in the way you're supposed to go. And, and so we have to be careful with that. And, and as we... I know, I'm sorry, Josh. Uh, um, the, the, the whole idea of it is, is this. No matter where you're working, whether you're the CEO or you're the minimum wage person, you're supposed to work with all your heart and serve Christ in the process. I have worked plenty of garbagey side jobs. I've worked some, some menial, menial jobs. I, I put out a thing on Facebook. I'm not sure how many of you guys know. A couple of you did. But um, you, you uh, it said, what was the worst job you ever had? And I started thinking through all the side jobs that I've had. I've had some good ones. But one of them, man, I, I had a friend who, he basically designed a water treatment plant for the Phoenix. And, and what they did is they would actually take all the wastewater. They would clean it. And then they would take that wastewater and put it towards golf courses to keep those golf courses green. But, that's why you don't drink the water on golf courses, by the way. Uh, and in that design, they also took all the things they took off of that water. Uh, I won't go into too much detail, but they would put it in big trucks. They would go spread it in these giant fields, let it dry out, and then sell it to farmers. That stuff was human fecal matter. Well, you know what you can't sell to farmers? Human fecal matter with weeds in it. So somebody has to pull the weeds. That guy called me when I was in college and needed money. Said, hey, do you guys want to go pull weeds? I'm like, yeah. The problem is, is during monsoon season in Phoenix, everything gets really wet. <laughs> so you can't, I, actually somebody's like, oh, I picked up dog dookie in a, in a dog kennel. I'm like, I'm going to beat you. I, I got it. I got it. And now I know there's lots, there's an entire TV show about dirty jobs. I think, I'm not sure if it's still on or not, but that, the thing is, it doesn't matter what you're doing. You're serving Christ. And you're setting the example to others who are watching from the outside. Because what if they see you being different? What conversation will start? How will that start? It doesn't matter if you're even good at what you do. Because sometimes we want to take that and say, oh, I'm going to pat myself on the back. There's a story about um, in the early days of Walt Disney and, and their cartoon drawing and all the things that went. They actually said this uh, to the... Uh, the employees, for the many talented artists who went to work with the Disney Corp in the early days, they're all told in no uncertain terms, there's only one name that we promoted at the company. That is Walt Disney. 
If you've come here in hopes to achieve fame for yourself, you're in the wrong place. Now, you can take or leave Disney or do whatever you want to do, but we can take that same mentality towards Christ. If you're here to lift up yourself, you're in the wrong place. If you're here to lift up, lift up Christ, you're in the right place. Because that's what our lives are all about. So Paul is saying this to each of us. And he says this really specifically to the employees. Work through Christ, work like Christ, and work for Christ. Work through Christ. Remember that Paul's addressing the Christian church. These are believers who have been spiritually raised from death to life. They have experienced the grace and mercy through the atoning death of Jesus Christ, and they now have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in their lives. So we've been talking about this whole time. It's filled with the Spirit, and it changes who we are and how we act and how we respond. We should have a Spirit-filled service. Work through Christ. Work like Christ. Jesus gives us a model work ethic. He is the suffering servant. Jesus humbled himself and died for sinners. He took on the form of a slave. He left glory to seek and save the lost. He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. These are all things we find throughout Scripture. As a working servant, Jesus was a carpenter. Some say a stonemason. Either way, he worked hard. He worked hard in a dumpy little town called Nazareth. I mean, even what in John 1, who is it? Is it Philip that says, Nazareth, what good can come from Nazareth? When we look at that, we see here is the sinless son of God working a dumpy job until he was 30 years old. Doing it all unto the Father. Think about these virtues that Paul mentioned. Jesus would have exemplified them. Would Jesus have been disrespectful while working? No. Would he slack off when nobody was watching? No. Would Jesus ever bill someone for extra time? No. Would he be a grumpy, begrudging servant? No. Did he minimize his job? No. If you were a follower of Christ, then you should be the exemplary example in your service. You don't need to have supervision. You don't need to to be the person that, that has to be told what to do over and over again. Besides this, man, if you're that way, you're going to make the gospel look good to people who don't think the gospel looks that great. But when we're the opposite, we might even turn them off. Work for Christ. You should do your best as if you were doing it for Jesus. Charles Spurgeon says this, Did anybody thus dream of supervising Raphael or Michelangelo to keep them to their work? No. The master artist requires no eyes to urge him on. Popes and emperors came to visit the great painters in their studios, but did they paint better because these grandees gazed upon them? Certainly not. Perhaps they did all the worse in the excitement or the worry of the visit. They had regard to something better than the eyes of the pompous people. Spurgeon said the reality of working for Christ should lift our spirits. It should change the way we do it. It should keep us from complaining, and it should really keep us from being lazy. John Stott, who we've already quoted, put it this way. He said, It is possible for the housewife to cook a meal as if Jesus were going to eat it, or spring clean the house as if Jesus Christ were the honored guest. It's possible for teachers to educate children, for doctors to treat patients and nurses to care for them, for shop assistants to serve customers, accountants to audit books, and secretaries to type letters as if in each case they were serving Jesus Christ. That is the employee. You, me, we should do our work for Christ and also realize that we will receive a award from Christ later. Many of us don't focus on that. They think, man, my work and my works 
don't matter. Now, from a spiritual standpoint, that is true. Jesus, His works save us, not ours. However, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that we talked about a few months ago now, God said He saved us to do good works. He saved us to do good works, and the rewards will be given based on our faithfulness. We should also anticipate the ultimate bonus, and that is when the king says, well done, good and faithful what? Servant. We are here to serve. Then Paul shifts to the employers. The employers lead through Christ, lead like Christ, and lead for Christ. Lead through Christ, and there are some challenges in leadership. There are some challenges in leadership. One one of the things that I have had strong debates with myself on is that do I want to keep doing this? There's some Sundays that I'm just like, you know what? I'm just going to go down and apply at Sam's Club and I'm just going to sell hot dogs because nobody's going to ask me what I need from them. I'm just going to give them a hot dog or a churro or a piece of pizza and they have three choices of pizza. So it's just going to be easy and people are just going to leave me alone and I can just do what I want to do because sometimes leadership is that way. But, Paul also talks about leadership and how we need the Spirit's power. 2 Corinthians tells us that Paul felt the pressure of leading churches, but the letter also goes on to describe that his, in his weakness, God's grace is sufficient and that he needs to work and lead through Christ's strength. We need to do the same thing. Not just lead through Christ, but lead like Christ. Christ is not just the model servant that we talked about before. He's also the ultimate master. What kind of leadership did Jesus execute? Servant leadership. He displayed the attitudes of those in leadership should follow. He came to serve. He took up a towel. He cared for the vulnerable. He didn't seek human praise. He was a shepherd and not a dictator. Also lead for Christ. Paul says that masters will give an account. As a leader, you may have more opportunities to bend the truth. You may have more opportunities to make unethical decisions because the accountability isn't quite there. But we need to remember that it is there because our audience is first and foremost Christ. And he is an impartial master. And what this means is, is that we should seek to lead and follow him because he is the ultimate leader. A couple more things we should see from this passage and we'll wrap up. This passage should change the way that we relate to people. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but our culture has subtly inserted ranks on who's important and who's not. It has put these things in there and said, this is where you fit in the value system. You know what this text does to that thinking? crushes it it crushes it although there's different roles there's no way different values of people the ranking assistant uh, a system does not exist for the christian we have the same lord and we await the same judgment in the book of james that we're going to start in a couple of weeks tells us that showing favoritism does not jive with the gospel of jesus and it doesn't work in the church we should relate to people differently from the way that our culture relates to people don't give preferential treatment to certain classes or ethnic groups. Care to the rich and rich and powerful and not care for those who are you know, poor and powerless. Be careful about our body language, about the way we give attention to others and the way we communicate to others. Don't give the impression that we're superior in some way and that someone might not be worth your time. Don't dehumanize individuals by thinking less of them and don't idolize any human by thinking too highly of them either. I've had a conversation at one point in time in the church that these are friends of mine and they said, hey, we, we need to find a different church because there's, there's not people like us here. And that crushed me. I said, hey, you got to do what you got to do. But that crushed me because 
the truth of the matter is there are people exactly like you here, broken, in need of a Savior, and those who are trying to follow Jesus through this power of the Spirit. That's it. That's the people who are here. That's the even ground that we're all on. Everybody's equal at the foot of the cross. One more thing about this passage, and I'll wrap up. This passage should change the way we evaluate what's important. Because you know what this, this passage says matters most? Jesus Christ. Our relationship with Jesus Christ is the most important thing, whether we work in a factory, at McDonald's, or in an office building in the nice part of town. What we do with Jesus and how we respond to Jesus is all that matters. Is he your master? Jesus said this in Mark eight thirty six. You've probably heard it before. What does it benefit a man to gain the whole world yet lose his life? If you know Christ, then you are rich. Because of this, you can say with Paul, as having nothing yet, I possess everything. The person who has Jesus and nothing is no less than the person who has Jesus plus all the other extra stuff. The real question is, is do you belong to Jesus? If the answer is yes, then you have everything. And what you do in this life matters. It matters both in this life, but also is revealed in the next one. What matters most to you? What matters most to you? Is it the economy? Is it the president? Is it your team? Is it your grades? Or is it Jesus? What matters most? We all desire to say, like Paul said in Philippians 1.21, a verse that gets quoted often, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ. If we are here living, it is about Jesus. If you do not have Christ, if you don't have Christ, then you need to receive the one who, though being the ultimate master, became the ultimate servant and died for sinners just like you and me. Jesus came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, to free us from slavery to sin and bring us up in a loving relationship with the Father. He came to give us what we could not earn, spiritual life. He came to make us what we could not become, sons instead of slaves. But the last thing we need to understand is he is the obedient server, uh, the obedient servant, the best master, and the sovereign Lord. Look to him today and live. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your words that you preserved over all this time. Words that we could read, words that we could study, words that we could dive into to see even how we are to relate to each other. God, the first thing I want to pray for is, is those who are in real slavery today. Under the bondage of sinful men, God, I ask for the, the power of the Holy Spirit to go and free them from bondage. Use people, use people around with, with a conscience. Use people around with a, a heart and a soul that is after you to, to free those people from all the things that are taking place to them. I pray for those who have been rescued from it and the PTSD and all the things that come from it. God, may you and your grace and your mercy be seen and felt and experienced as they continue to recover from all the things that have happened. God, as I look at this passage as well, I look at the idea of being a slave, a slave to sin, a slave to our temptations, a slave to our desires. God, thank you for sending Jesus to free us from those. But far too often we struggle and we try and go back, and we try and go back, and it's a fight, it's a fight, it's a fight. God, give us the strength to win that battle. And we're going to even talk about that next week as we look at life being a war. God, we need you. We're thankful that you are with us, that you are guiding us. May we not get in the way of your plans and your direction. We pray it in your name. Amen.